Welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. This is episode 13. As a former school teacher, I am accustomed to breaking down material into units and semesters and so on. While the episodes of this podcast proceed in an uncomplicated linear fashion, I arrange them in a particular order to reflect the different periods and transitions of influence, power, and culture in the Western world. In fact, while this content is presented as a podcast, it could easily serve as a kind of textbook for studying history. I have planned a total of eight separate series of podcasts. Each series will be broken down into units. This first series covers, in brief fashion, the history of the world prior to the rise of the Greek city-states. At present, we have completed the first of two units in this series. This episode begins the second unit. The prior unit told the story of the world from the very beginning of the universe until the end of the Stone Age. The Western Traditions podcast is meant to tell the story of Western civilization, which is primarily associated with Europe and European culture, but its roots, like those of any human culture, extend into the deepest, unknown past. For that reason, the first unit of this series covered what little is known about the unwritten history of human life before the rise of cities in various locations around the globe, approximately six or 7,000 years ago. The second unit, which I plan to complete in 15 to 20 additional episodes, will describe the rise of civilization in the ancient Near East. This may appear to be tangential to the purpose of the podcast, which is the study of Western traditions. However, I will demonstrate why these ancient cultures, which on the surface appear quite different from the traditions we inherited from Greek, Roman, and medieval culture, are actually fundamental to our way of life in the West, to the way that we think, speak, and act, even though these civilizations, which were founded by people of culture and genetic lineage completely distinct to that of the Indo-Europeans who settled in Europe, died out thousands of years ago. You will soon be able to find out more information about these in future episodes on my website at western-traditions.org. That is western-traditions.org. There will, be, have, there will be links to each episode there, lists of source material and the general layout of the coming episodes and future series of podcasts. It will also be a place that you can help support the podcast financially with contributions through my Patreon account or directly through PayPal. If you have listened to the first 12 episodes, I thank you for your patience. I also thank you for your understanding. I will be going back to re-record some episodes in which the sound was less than spectacular. I have started this project out on a shoestring and have recorded everything on my phone. By the time I get to the end of the second unit, sometime early next year, I hope to have superior recording equipment. At present, however, I am simply counting on the compelling nature of the content to keep you interested. Anyway, I thank you again for listening. Now, let's get on with the story. It is 4000 BC. All around the globe, something unusual is happening, something never seen in human history. For the last few thousand years, members of the last remaining species of archaic humans, known to us as Homo sapiens, our ancestors, have started living in large, mostly sedentary groups. They have previously constructed what we now call proto-cities, going back to at least 7000 BC. These proto-cities were unorganized clumps of humanity, fascinating for their originality and still mysterious to us, due to the lack of any written records left behind in their ruins. It is perhaps this mystery, 
which really draws the line between history and prehistory, between the proto-cities of Jericho or Catalhuyuk and the ancient cities of Uruk, Kish, and Lagash. You, you see, we have nothing in writing even referring to the most ancient foundations of Jericho or Catalhuyuk. They are and remain archaeological discoveries, but we have texts referring to the city-states of ancient Mesopotamia, to Ur and Uruk, and other cities. For a long time, these cities were only known through biblical references. For example, Abraham, in the book of Genesis, is reported to have come from Ur. It is believed that the references in Genesis to Shinar are probably meant to indicate ancient Sumer. Since the discovery or rediscovery of Sumer in the 19th century, we have acquired much more in terms of the written record as well as archaeological findings. The line between history and prehistory shifted again. We now know that we can say something about the rulers of these cities, their religion, their applications of agriculture, trade, war. And there are other differences as well, size for one. The earlier proto-cities were home to thousands of people, most of them somewhere on the continuum between hunting and gathering and completely sedentary urban life. The cities of ancient Sumeria, however, were populated by tens of thousands of people, and they built immense wonders of architecture as well. Their lifestyles were different too, in cities like Uruk. Most men engaged in specialized trades rather than subsistence farming, like their Neolithic contemporaries. Social classes had appeared. It is probably untrue that once upon a time all men lived as brothers in egalitarian hunter-gatherer clans in which everyone shared resources. No doubt, even among our Stone Age ancestors, there were power structures. However, those hierarchies were probably close to that egalitarian ideal, with certain men holding a limited form of leadership that could not have developed into despotism simply due to the physical and environmental circumstances of the tribe that they led. But this was not so in the cities of once lost Sumer. Here, for the first time in human history, we hear of kings, mostly holding power due to military prowess. They also maintain their power through another new social class, the priesthood. Religion in the Stone Age is, and probably always will remain, a matter of mystery. Previous episodes of this podcast mention numerous archaeological finds that may have or may not have played a role in Stone Age religious beliefs. You can easily search on the internet for endless speculative theories about how and why the men and women of the Neolithic period engaged in spiritual practices, but those theories remain speculation. But in Sumer, we now have definite knowledge about ancient religion, though our evidence remains far from comprehensive. We know the names of the gods and the heroes, we know their creation myths, and we have some idea of what their forms of worship involved, such as animal sacrifice, and the crafting of long oral tales to relate the details of the spiritual history of each religion. How do we know these things? Why do we know these details? We know, thanks to the development of writing, Writing, the conversion of the spoken word into a graphic record, seems quite fundamental to modern man. It is something that we teach to our children before they learn virtually anything else. Children as young as four or five years old may be seen putting pencil to paper to scrawl out their names in schools around the world. Yet this now elementary skill was once preserved to a very small group of men in ancient societies. I speak now of another new social class that we can identify in ancient cities. The scribe. 6,000 years ago, scribes held the place in society that we might now give to specialists in computer science. They managed communication and information, and just like today, information was key to power for those at the top of the social hierarchy. 
Writing was the newest thing, like computers were a generation ago. Only technology advanced much more slowly back then. Today, after a new technology emerges, it is initially something to which only the wealthy have access. Then, after a few years, it becomes less expensive and or more available to the general public. In the 1990s, in the United States, cell phones were special, only owned by the upper middle class or those working in government or for large corporations. Ten years later, nearly everyone owned a cell phone. By now, in 2021, it is simply assumed that someone has a cell phone or a smartphone. The same evolution of availability occurred with the internet and with any other number of technological devices. This was not the case with writing or with any new advance in our earliest history. Learning to write required a considerable amount of time, whether it was to be acquired during childhood or adulthood, time that the average man and woman did not have. In the past, even small children labored to support their families, whether it involved supporting farm work somehow, helping to maintain the household, or beginning to learn the fundamentals of the trades of their fathers. Few families could afford to set aside time for their children to learn something as abstract as writing. So writing and reading remained the province of a select few for thousands of years after it was first developed. And how does the development of writing help us understand our ancient ancestors? Simply, it provides us with the first documentation of historical events and beliefs in the Bronze Age, which we believe is when the first attempts at writing were made. Regarding this advent of writing, I should make it clear that at this time period, roughly 3,500 BC, this was not the first time that anyone had made an attempt to use graphic symbols to communicate. In Europe, anyway, there is widespread evidence that archaic humans were using signs carved into rock to communicate probably with the tribe and with outsiders. However, there is no evidence of grammar or sentence structure, simply symbols that may have meant go no further or water is here or may simply announce the identity of the tribe which held the territory. In Sumer, writing most likely first developed to record financial transactions, or at least to record trade. There was not any form of currency in the world for thousands of years. Instead, people transacted with one another using actual resources. You were paid for your work in quantities of grain, oil, wine, or livestock. For the governments of these ancient cities, writing was important because the rulers taxed their subjects, and there being tens of thousands of them, the information could not be trusted to memory. With writing came bureaucracy and bureaucrats into the government of human society, and among the bureaucrats, scribes played a central role. Before moving on, I would like to say something about memory and trust. For those of us living in the 21st century, we tend to assume that writing developed to record things that were too complex and numerous for the human brain to manage. This is probably untrue, even when dealing with the financial transactions of 30 or 40,000 people. Ancient people were capable of holding amounts of information now popularly deemed incredible in their heads. Long tales like the Odyssey or the Epic of Gilgamesh were preserved in oral tradition centuries before anyone committed them to writing. Yes, hard as it is for us today to believe, people can commit to memory long pieces of text. Even today, there are those in the Islamic world that memorize the entire Quran. So the capacity for memorizing mountains of financial data was probably already there. What more likely spurred the development of writing were the matters of trust and the temporal integrity of the data. That is, rulers needed to have trustworthy documentation of the quantities involved and not just rely on the honesty of a given man to faithfully and completely relate the information when needed. 
Furthermore, it is important to remember that in such times when a man died, he took with him all the knowledge and experience he had acquired, and it was lost to posterity forever. Writing helped in part to remediate this issue by allowing scribes to commit things to writing and to leave them for future generations. To continue, we know much more about these cities in Bronze Age Mesopotamia than we do about any prior human settlements anywhere in the world due to written records. However, those records are not always those that the contemporary inhabitants created. In fact, while we have written copies of tales, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, these copies are actually much more recent. They're Babylonian copies of stories that were passed down for a thousand years uh, before we find copies of them in the ruins. Modern writing has roots that go deeper into the past than the so-called first form of writing found in Sumer. As mentioned in a previous episode, archaic humans were using symbols carved into rock to transmit messages to each other. They probably carved messages into wood and bone as well, but as we saw with the study of the tools of ancient human objects made from these and other materials, they don't endure tens of thousands of years. We have only today the messages that they carved into rock, which were presumably messages that they meant to last a long time. What these messages were, we will probably never understand. And the same goes for the first so-called proto-writing of the Sumerians. Sometime around 3500 BC, pictographs appear among the archaeological record in Mesopotamia. They are messages, communication of some sort, carved into clay tablets. Later, these clay tablets could be heated or sun-dried to make them last. They are most likely administrative texts of some sort, but we cannot be sure because you cannot decipher pictographs in the same way that you might decipher a language using an alphabet or a syllabary, which is a comprehensive collection of symbols representing the syllables used in a language, such as the Chinese or the Japanese use. Pictographs use pictures and symbols to mean specific words or people. The meaning of these texts, if we may call them that, therefore was lost in the centuries to come and the pictographs transformed into something that we now call cuneiform, the first real written human language. Early cuneiform appears to the modern eye as a bunch of scratches in clay. There is good reason for this. The flowing curves and subtle details in many letters used in the Western alphabet are only possible to produce when one is putting pen to paper or using a computer to generate them. When carving into stone or clay, one is required by necessity to make more use of straight, simple lines. Over the last few centuries of the 4th millennium BC, pictographs fade from use and cuneiform becomes much more prevalent. Cuneiform used a combination of the old pictographs alongside symbols that stood for syllables of the Sumerian language. Initially, the listener, the listener might be tempted to dismiss cuneiform as a primitive form of writing, with people eagerly envisioning when an alphabet would come along to improve everything. As I mentioned before, when studying the tools and traits of the people of the Paleolithic, we are biased in favor of their future and our present, imagining that they are on a path that leads inevitably to the now. But cuneiform was not swept aside by the use of alphabets for 3,000 years, though alphabetic writing would be invented before 1000 BC. Indeed, right down to the Roman era, societies in the ancient Near East would continue to use cuneiform as their primary form of written expression.
The ancient Near East pioneered more than one crucial development in human history. Writing took a great leap forward, but so also did government. Now, modern Westerners may regard kingship with some disdain, particularly the form of kingship that appeared in the Near East at this time, which was very despotic in comparison to Western democratic ideals. However, it should be remembered that these were the first attempts to govern such large masses of humanity. There was no precedent for the people of Mesopotamia to follow, as these cities sprung up along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers just after 4000 BC. Certainly, cities such as Uruk and Kish had not simply appeared out of nowhere. They had been built on the foundations of earlier so-called proto-cities, which must have had their own organizational schemes. But as they grew in population and social complexity, there was no blueprint to consult, no prior experience of organizing tens of thousands of people, providing for defense, commerce, and large-scale agriculture, that they managed to survive such a rapid change in lifestyle at all, and still build immense works of architecture and preserve great tales of gods and heroes, speaks to their ingenuity and their capacity for adaptation. Speaking of immense works of architecture, I should mention the ziggurats. You have probably seen images of them, or perhaps heard them referred to as steppe pyramids. The people of the various cities of ancient Mesopotamia built them before the Egyptians built their own pyramids, which would be remembered for all of human history, while those built along the Tigris and Euphrates would be forgotten to all, even to the ancient Egyptians, until their rediscovery in the 19th century. The Sumerians built the structures that remained after 3000 BC, but there is evidence of the existence of more modest raised platforms existing all the way back to 5000 BC and before in this area. These prehistoric feats of architecture were mimicked or equaled in many other parts of the world, such as Stonehenge, or the previously mentioned Gobekli Tepe. Significant not only for their size, the ziggurats must also have required incredible social organization and cooperation not seen before in human history. Whether this spurred the growth or government of government oversight or it was a result of government oversight is hard to say. And then there are the stories. When Sumer was dug up for the first time in the 19th century, archaeologists also discovered thousands of those previously mentioned clay tablets upon which various writers had recorded mostly administrative data for their city governments. A small number of those tablets, however, contained something other than dry bureaucratic data. They preserved numerous stories of the mythical past of the people of Sumer, including the great Enuma Elish, which is the Sumerian account of creation. Also found among the tablets was the Epic of Gilgamesh. This, test, this text will be discussed in detail in a future episode. However, I will now relate that when the text was first translated, there was great surprise because it not only told a compelling story of ancient adventure and tragedy, but it also told of a global flood that the gods inflicted upon mankind, intending to wipe out every last person on the planet. The clear connection to the biblical story of Noah's flood should explain why this ancient society, which was forgotten to the Greeks and the Egyptians and only barely referred to in the most ancient biblical texts, is a fundamental part of the story of our Western traditions. In Mesopotamia, which is actually a Greek term referring to this land between two rivers, Sumer would give way after many centuries to other ancient Near Eastern civilizations, 
many of which might sound more familiar, especially if you have ever read the Old Testament, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, and others. Each of these will be discussed in detail in future episodes. Furthermore, there are a number of societies on the periphery of this region of the world which will earn our interest. For example, those of the Hittites in Anatolia and the Canaanites and Phoenicians along the Mediterranean coast. More than one episode will cover the history of ancient Egypt. Before the discovery of Sumer, Egypt was thought to be the first and oldest civilization, that from which all others had learned the essentials of civilization and adapted it to their own needs. As well, future episodes will relate some of the story of ancient Israel and Judah, whose history is primarily known from biblical texts. And we will also talk about the end of the Bronze Age and the beginning of the Iron Age. If you have been listening since the beginning, I thank you for sticking around. The episodes have not rolled out as fast as I had hoped. I recently suffered from a modern historical event that will probably make it into future textbooks. I was laid out by the coronavirus for several weeks after recording episode 11. Hopefully, the pace will pick up now so that I can finally get into the heart and soul of our Western traditions, the story of ancient Greece, by early next year. In the very next episode, number 14, I will speak of Sumer in greater detail and recount the Epic of Gilgamesh as well as the Enuma Elish, two important written texts which probably preserve oral traditions dating back to well before 3000 BC. Until then, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast. <laughs>